Well, good morning. We're beginning a new series this morning uh, through the first chapter of Romans. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans as I begin. It said that Frederick the Great, the Prussian ruler of the late 18th century, once said, all religions must be tolerated for every man must get to heaven his own way. And given the religious wars that had filled Europe for a century after the Reformation, you can understand why Frederick would, would land there. He, he wanted a more enlightened, uh, less violent path for society. Really, he wanted peace at any cost. And here in America, through the good offices of our representatives and Constitution and a Bill of Rights, were fashioned, which guaranteed not just a religious toleration as a European countries, but a religious liberty. The American founding fathers' belief in an absolute God who made moral creatures in his image demanded that liberty be extended to all persons regardless of their faith. And now with two centuries past, many have forgotten or ignored the Christian roots of such thinking and have wrongly and then dangerously believed that religious liberty can, can only be kept by mere indifference to the major differences between each religion. And if you begin to study those differences, you can learn a lot about us as humans. But when those differences are understood and treated as significant, understood for their eternal destinies, then those once enlightened minds begin to worry. Blog posts and editorials are written and forms are, 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 are held equating Christian evangelism with terrorism. Of course, true Christian conversion is never the result of coercion. By its very nature, Christian conversion cannot happen by coercion. It is the work of God. We don't save people. God saves people. But what if what, what, if what this religion says is true and that religion says is wrong? Is there really a creator who made us? Is this creator just? What demands does he place on our lives? Does he care if we are good? If he does, what will he do if we're not good? If, if he's committed to justice, at what bearing does that have on our lives today? These questions, largely dismissed in our current cultural climate, are the questions that we Christians insist are most important. Questions of political policy and procedure, of social rights and responsibilities, they must be asked and answered. But nowhere are our personal interests more involved than when we turn to the question as Christians about salvation, particularly our own salvation. Whom will God save? And how will God save? These are the questions that Paul seeks to answer in his book, written to the Romans. And and these are the type of questions that the gospel addresses in the Bible. So this morning, we're going to begin a short series through the chapter of Romans 1. This morning is, is really just an overview of the entire chapter. And, and next week, we'll slowly make our way through the chapter. So here's the main idea for this morning, Romans 1. God has revealed to us through the gospel his righteousness through Christ and his wrath because of sin. 
God has revealed to us through the gospel his righteousness through Christ and his wrath because of sin. And there's two points this morning, the revealed righteousness of God and the revealed wrath of God. We had a question last week, and so we, we found this little outline of sermon notes for kids. So kids, if you're here and you're getting kind of bored and squeamish, this in the foyer is good. It kind of walks through about some ways, maybe grown-ups too. Don't be ashamed if you're a grown-up and think, I want this too. I think you can draw a picture maybe if you want. But they're in the foyer. Maybe they'll help focus you as we walk through here, answering some questions as we walk through the sermon this morning. So we're going to look at the entire first chapter of Romans. If you have your Bibles open, we're going, to, we're going to read through Romans 1. I want you to follow along as I read. If you don't have a Bible, we have some there placed underneath the chairs. If you've never looked at a Bible before, it's on page 883. Uh, that's Romans 1. If you're unfamiliar looking at a Bible, the large chapter numbers are the, ch- are the, the, large numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. So that kind of gives you a clue where we're at. We're going to be primarily in Romans. We might jump around a little bit. Um, but Romans 1 is where we're going to be. So, follow with me as I read. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. It was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made." So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts became darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged a truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up 
to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Before we, we look at those two areas there, the, the outline revealed, I'm going to give some background, and we won't go through every detail of, of Romans 1 this morning. So we're, even though the clock here says 10-10, we're not going to go for two hours, all right? I know it's 11-10. So we're going to do an overview. Years ago, uh, I, actually the year I was born, there was a video made of the power of 10 where they start in Chicago. I think I've mentioned this before. And the video just kind of goes up by a power of 10 and it shows the vastness of the universe. So that's kind of what we're doing here. We're kind of zooming out. Like if you've ever been on a plane and you're going over to Seattle, you can kind of look out and see, oh, that's where my house is and see the greater big, okay? So that's what we're going to do with Romans 1 this morning. Kind of the big picture of Romans just 1. So let me give you some background here as we launch in. Romans was probably written around A.D. 57, near the end of Paul's life. Paul was a stranger to this church in Rome. Unlike some of the other churches which he had written to, he had neither founded nor visited this church before. We do not know who established the church in Rome. Perhaps some of the Jews at Pentecost were converted, returned to Rome, and began this church. We do know from extra-biblical resources that Christians met together in Rome for, from a very early period. We don't know much about the Roman church except that Jewish and Gentile believers both belong to it, and we learn that in, in Paul's letter primarily. And Paul explicitly addresses both groups. And why did Paul write the letter to Romans? Christians have commonly used this letter to sort out Paul's systematic theology, a timeless and classic statement of, of Christian faith, in particular of the gospel. And it's an, it isn't easy to approach Romans like this, in part because Paul does not address specific situations or controversies as he does in the other letters like Corinthians or Galatians. But really, the book of Romans serves as a grand theological blueprint for the gospel doctrine which undergirds the New Testament. With Romans appearing right after the four gospels in the book of Acts, this letter unpacks the significance of who Jesus is and why Jesus and what he came to do. And Paul takes these gospel narratives of Jesus and his apostles, as many as Old Testament words that he will, he will quote, and reveals their doctrinal implications for the church. So in other words, Paul explains the theological meaning of the overarching story stretching from Genesis to Jesus and then beyond. And while it's true that Romans is, is a classic statement of the Christian faith, it is not simply a list of unconnected propositions. He, he makes a sustained argument that explains the Christian gospel, and he uses the argument to introduce himself and to address his readers in this personal letter. Specifically, he writes to, to frustrate any Jews and their tendencies to, to force their, their views on Gentiles, in, in which circumcision and, and Jewish customs are con, confused with the gospel. 
And he writes to disarm any, any tension that might arise between these two groups in this church of Jews and Gentiles. And he, and he writes to address the question that burns in his soul, the fate of his own people, the Jews. And in some ways, this, this last purpose seems to be the driving force behind the letter to the Romans. Romans really is a monumental book for us as Christians to consider. Martin Luther called Romans the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And he believed that every Christian should know it word for word by heart and occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of his soul. And Lord willing, we'll take our time through the book of Romans. My desire is to, is to really break up the book into mini-series. So it's going to take years. So if you're really interested, you've got to stick with us, okay? I'll finish it, Lord willing, before God takes me home. Maybe not. Someone else will finish it. If you're interested in a commentary as we go through this the next seven weeks, there is a commentary, uh, three copies there on the bookstall. You can get that after the service. And it's a good commentary that walks through uh, the book of Romans. So again, main idea. God has revealed to us through the gospel his righteousness through Christ and his wrath because of sin. So number one, the revealed righteousness of God. And this is a much longer point. So don't get worried at the end thinking number two is going to be long. It won't, okay? This is a long one. Paul begins the letter with, with this normal greeting that we read. Most ancient Greek letters would have had this, this introduction and body and conclusion, and Paul uses the same format. There in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. See, Paul, right off the bat, sees himself as a servant of God. The word for servant here is doulos, so it's better translated slave. Paul, Paul saw himself as a slave to God. He, he saw himself as property to God, a worker for God an apostle of God, and he was, he was set apart for the gospel of God. And so he saw his main function in his life since his conversion on the road to Damascus as a servant to preach the gospel to lost sinners. And as we read in verse 5, he was sent to the nations, to the lost Gentiles. And what we learn from that is our God is a missionary God. He has always been, and, and Paul was called on a mission to share the gospel those new provinces, and to establish new churches that would grow and, and preach the gospel themselves. So this is one of the reasons why he's writing to the Church of Rome, to, to encourage them, but he's also writing to gather funds, as we'll find out, because he wants to visit them and then go even further to Spain so that more churches would be planted. So how would Paul answer the question, well, who are you? You know, it's, it's the question we ask now, Right, when you get to know someone, it's like, so what do you do? Right, that question, what do you do? This is, how would Paul answer that? Paul, well, what do you do? He would say, I'm a slave of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God to the nations. And I, I ask that, or I say that because I, I want you to think about that question. If someone comes and asks you, so what do you do? Who are you? How would you answer? How would you answer that question? It's a good question to consider. Maybe that will, will, will saturate your mind this week because we'll come back to this section again next week. But think through that. Who am I? What, what am I called to do while I'm still here on earth? Paul goes on in this, this first chapter to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ who was promised long ago, who came through the lineage of David, who died and rose again to new life, that we could become new creations. And he writes this letter, he says, to, to those in Rome, and he says this statement, who are loved by God. And, and I just sat on that statement this week just for a while, meditating. I, I love that phrase, who are loved by God. 
and how I needed to hear that. And I suspect you need to hear that too this morning. You need some encouragement? Christian, God loves you. He he truly loves you. You recall back in Deuteronomy when God said the same thing to his people. He says it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. The only explanation why the Lord loved them and why the Lord loves us because he chooses to love us. It is love and love only. It's not because we're strong and mighty and really, really smart and we figured out the way. No, he loves us because he loves us, because he's chosen to love us. And we're Christians here this morning simply because God has set his love on us. He did this. He brought us out of darkness and into light. God did this. And we need to be reminded of this today. Christian, you're loved by God. And these believers that Paul is writing to here are loved by God and, and really becoming famous, as he says in verse 8. You see that? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith was proclaimed in all the world. They're doing the work of ministry there in Rome. They've been faithful Christians, and Paul longs to, to visit them, to encourage them, to strengthen them. And he gives them his ministry calling there more detail and explains the gospel. You see his, his motive for ministry in verse 16. And really, this is the, 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 the thesis, the entire book of Romans. We'll look at it in more detail in a few weeks, but, but follow with me as I read again, verse 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. His righteousness has been revealed. And what is this righteousness he speaks of that's been revealed? This righteousness is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Later in in Romans 3.22, Paul says that this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the very righteousness of Christ that God gives us. And righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Paul tells us so, and the gospel concerns itself with Jesus Christ. So it, it is Christ who has this righteousness, and it's from him that we receive this righteousness through the gospel. Jesus is intrinsically righteous, and what I mean by this is that he in and of himself is completely righteous. He is God, and he's utterly and completely without any sin. He he said, and he also said time and again in the Gospels that he was from, he was God, and he was from God, and he couldn't go against the Father, that he and the Father were in perfect harmony, and so he is naturally righteous, but he also achieved righteousness by his obedience to the law while he was on earth. Preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about Christ and he says this, he rendered a, a perfect obedience to the law. He kept it in every jot and tittle. He failed in no respect. He fulfilled God's law completely, perfectly, and absolutely. And not only that, he has dealt with the penalty meted out by the law upon all sin, upon all sins. He took, he took away your guilt and mine upon himself and he bore its punishment. The penalty of the law was meted out upon him, and so he has honored the law completely, positively, and negatively, and actively, and passively. 
There is nothing further the law can demand on us. Christ has satisfied it all. And so when Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, he means that the gospel shows how we can get the righteousness we so desperately need. And in the gospel, we see that we need and what we see what Christ has done. In the gospel, when we, when we look and understand the good news, we, we, we learn that we're sinners, all of us. You and me, we're sinners. And we can, because of the gospel, be declared to have the righteousness of God given to our accounts, attributed to our accounts. The term for the application of the righteousness of Christ to the sinner is imputation. It's like putting the, the infinite moral capital of the Lord Jesus Christ in our empty bank accounts. It is having the riches of heaven at our disposal. And how do we receive this righteousness? We receive it through faith. The righteousness that comes to me comes because I receive it through faith. It is not because of my merit. It's not because of my work or my good behavior. It comes to me because of faith in Christ Jesus. And we are then declared justified by faith. And what does that mean? Whenever we talk about being justified, we're talking about not a change in the object, but a change in relationship to the object. It's not a change inside the object, but but relationship to that object. For example, if you're speaking to me and you say something, and I say, I, I don't know, you need to justify that statement. What do I mean? Well, I don't mean you should change the statement, but what I'm actually saying is that it's hard for me to accept that. Uh, You need to do something. Say something to change my relationship to that statement, to change my regard for it so that I can accept it. I'm not saying make a new statement, but more like help me to get in a new relationship with that statement because I'm about to, to reject it. So justify that statement. For me, it means change my regard for it. Do something to to reorient me to that statement. And this is actually what the word justify means. Especially at certain points here, but also in Romans 5, where Paul talks about it. Turn just a couple pages over to Romans 5. Verses 1 and 2 there. Paul's going to talk about that here. He says, therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The word stand there means that we're able to stand in the presence of Almighty God, the King and the Judge of all. And why are we able to stand? Because of his grace. We, we stand in the presence of God because we have been justified by faith, and through his grace, we can stand and have peace with God. So Paul is saying that Christ has, has done something. He has justified us so that we can stand before a holy God. He has done something to change God's regard for us, his relationship to us. Christ has done this. His righteousness has been revealed, and now through faith we can be made new. See, faith is the the channel through sinners receive Christ's righteousness. And what is faith? Another good question, right? Martin Luther initially 
as a monk in, in, in Germany in the 1500s thought that faith was a work. And so he, he grimly regarded it as something to, to be attained. But faith is not a work. Faith is believing God, not just believing in God. It is opening a hand to receive the righteousness of Christ that God offers. Faith consists first of knowledge. It isn't just an attitude, but the content in our mind. We must have faith in something. And in the case of salvation, the object of our, of our knowledge is the revelation of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. But faith is also a, 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 consists of a heart response to the knowledge of who Christ is. Faith is not a, an agreement to some principle. That is true, but it, it has no relationship to it. No, it has a change there. So faith involves the love of God for us in saving us through the death of Jesus Christ. And unless this reaches our hearts and moves us and changes us, then we really don't understand the gospel. Faith also consists of a commitment, a commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't just a savior in some abstract way out there. No, he's our savior. He is, he is my savior. And I know this deep down in my bones. It's, 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 he's mine. I'm committed to him because I believe what his word says and I believe he is faithful to his promises and I believe that he died for me because I could never save myself. See, faith is so important for us to understand. Charles Spurgeon, writing about faith, says this, faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. It's not an unpractical thing, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and, and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith is the eye which looks. Faith is the hand which grasps. Faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. Faith is both God's gift and man's act. The Lord is the author of our faith, but we ourselves believe. Faith is sanctified common sense. It is faith in the completed work of Christ and his free gift of Christ's righteousness to believing men and believing women. Faith alone is important not only because the church stands and falls on it. Faith is important because we stand or fall upon it. And the place where we will stand or fall is at the judgment seat of God. The doctrine of justification is, is not there for smart theological nerds. It is there for all of us, friends. For all of us to understand. It, it has to do with your standing before a holy God. See, all this plays in because you will stand before God one day and you will either be justified, made right to God by your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, or you will stand unjustified before God in your own work. A few, excuse me, a few pages back in Romans 3, Paul emphasizes this. Look back at Romans 3 verse 10. It's quoting here Isaiah in verse 10. None of us is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, right? We, we learned that when we were kids in, in Isaiah. But then look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the, the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, here, this is a, a dilemma that Paul is giving to, to the church to think through. There will be a judgment. It will be a righteous judgment. And as fallen creatures, we're, we're not righteous in and of ourselves. No, in ourselves, in our own work, we stand condemned before God. So it's a, it's a threatening warning that he's giving to them. He says, no human being will be justified in his sight, in and of himself, in his work. But that's not the end of the sentence. That's not the end of the story. If it was, there would be no justification. There'd be no gospel. There'd be no good news. It'd be only bad news for us. No, no what he says is there's no human to be justified by the works of the law. He's saying there, there's no way that any of you can earn your justification There's no way that you can stand on your own before God and make yourself right with him. There is nothing you can do. But Paul doesn't pack it up and leave and say, good luck. I mean, that would be a shame at that point. He doesn't do that. He doesn't leave us groping for an answer to try to find it on our own. He ends verse 20 with this dire situation, but then he begins verse 21. Look at verse 21 with the word but. In the continuance. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, we are made righteous because of Christ's payment for us by his blood the propitiation, the atonement of what Christ did on the cross. And propitiation, that payment is turning aside the wrath of God against our sin. And with Christ's payment for sin, he can redeem us from the slave market of sin. See, before we were Christians, we were slaves to sin. We could do nothing about it. We couldn't get ourselves out. Because of Christ, we are justified. Justification, as we've seen, is a a legal term showing the act of a judge declaring a defendant to be in right standing before the prevailing law. Here the judge is God and we are the defendant. And we need to be declared right before God's holy law. But we're not right. We're, We're violators of the law. So how does he declare us righteous? It happens only through Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death and propitiation achieved on the cross that we can be justified, that we can be made right before God. And through this understanding of justification, and and I know this probably seems really big, I know I'm going really fast, it's all right, we'll dive into this, but because of this understanding of justification, we will have peace and we will have security. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't have any peace and you're unsure whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're saved or not. And friends, it might be because you're trying to add work to Jesus Christ. 
You're trying to earn your way to, for God to look at you and to love you and to accept you. And in essence, friend, you're trying to save yourself. And can I say this graciously? Stop. Trust in Christ alone. Stop trusting in yourself. You cannot be justified before a holy God by yourself. You have to trust in Christ. And when you do, you will be overwhelmed with peace. You will have assurance when you look at the cross and you see what all, what Jesus Christ did for you. You have assurance when you come and meditate on the gospel. And I've said this before, you don't have assurance because you go back 20 years to when you went forward at camp and that's your assurance. Friend, that's not where insurance comes from. Assurance comes today from believing in Jesus Christ. It comes through understanding the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. And insurance is such a sweet thing for us to have as Christians. Can I give you a little history lesson here? I love history. As I get older, I love it more and more. But you know, back, back in the Reformation time, assurance was, was not something that was taught by the Roman Catholic Church. It was sorely lacking in the Reformation. In fact, the Reformers would regard uh, this understanding to the damnable doctrine of doubt. Because that's what the Roman Catholic Church would teach. They wouldn't teach the security of the believer. The Roman Catholic Church taught and currently teaches by their catechism that it's wrong thinking for any individual to be confident that they will go to heaven when they die. They, they don't know if maybe you'll commit some kind of mortal sin, taught as their doctrine says. And so you'll have some kind of work to, to, to work off in purgatory. And so that's what they taught. So no one had any assurance. And so the only people the Roman Catholic Church could say that are in heaven for certain are the ones that they've canonized. Those are the saints that they've recognized. So, so let me put this right where you live right now. If you have any Catholic friends that you've built a relationship with, neighbors or coworkers, and you tell them that you're saved and that you know you're going to heaven, what most likely they hear is a prideful statement. That they think it's arrogance to be confident in salvation. A Catholic hears that statement if they're listening to their church and, and they hear that we're saying we're perfect, that we've achieved perfection, that we've done it, and it's offensive to them. They see, because they don't believe that you can know for sure you're going to heaven. But that's not what we mean at all as evangelical, as Bible-believing Christians. No, we're not saying we've achieved perfection by our own work, that we've, we've made it ourselves. No, we're saying we're saved by grace through the cross of Christ that we're made right and justified before God. And what we're trying to display before them is humility. We're trying to point them to Christ who he saved us and he's keeping us. See, assurance was this idea that was completely foreign to these people in the early 1500s. They would have never heard this in their church services. And can you imagine then, with the Reformation happening, what would happen to people that burst on the scene through the preaching of the Reformers? I mean, can you imagine going to church week after week and thinking there is no hope? I just have to work my way there. 
and you go home every week depressed and down. I just got to do more. I got to give more. I got to do more. And perhaps, perhaps someday God will let me in. And the reformers burst onto the scene and they say, no, because of Christ, today you can have salvation. And today you know you're saved. See, the church didn't teach this. It'd be heretical pride. They would condemn this type of thinking. In fact, many died teaching this. I mean, I, I can't imagine every single night as a parent in my home being worried about myself, not only myself, but then my children, and just being overrun by anxiety and possibly depression. And then to hear this, you mean, I can know today that I can spend eternity with God and that I can be assurance of that because of what Christ has done for me on the cross? I want to have spent years and decades at the millennium in purgatory to try to purify myself and work myself to salvation, but I can just trust in Christ and trust in his blood to cover me and my sins, and I can be saved, and I can know that now? I mean, that would be the best news in the world, isn't it? Oh, what peace comes. What assurance comes. Christ is ours forevermore. We sang about that. Catholics don't sing about that. But as Christians, we do. And we're only justified and made right and assured because of Jesus Christ. Friend, do you have that assurance this morning? Consider, friends, what you do, what what do you depend on to justify yourself before the one who made heaven and earth? I mean, think about this, really, back in your soul, deep down in your bones. What are you leaning on for hope after this world? Is it your ability to keep some moral guidelines that you were taught as a child, to just be a good person? The fact that you attend church occasionally, you in, you in fact enjoy listening to sermons? The fact that you're doing okay financially, that your health is good, that you try to help people and give And perhaps maybe you just sit here and thinking, hey, Jeff, God isn't judging me right now. So everything must be fine. But what if you die tonight and you stand before God because certainly the scriptures are clear, you will. And he asks you that classic question, why should I let you into my heaven? Friend, what would you say? Honestly, everyone seated here needs to answer that question. What true answer would your heart allow your lips to say even if your lips have been taught the right words? Remember, you're looking into the eyes of the creator who made you, who knows you, who has seen every single moment of your life. You can't pull a fast one on God. And what has your heart truly trusted in for your life? You will answer that question one day, friend. And what will you say? Can I implore you today to trust in Jesus Christ alone? 
Christ alone can be trusted. You can give your life to him and he won't run you down. He won't lead you astray. He is worthy to be trusted. And faith in him alone is a gift from God. It's all of God's grace. It's all of what he's done for us. And through faith and belief in him and what Christ has done for us on the cross, he will justify you before a holy God. He will make you right. Not kind of right, not sort of right, not a little right, completely right before a holy God. And you can stand before him that day and when he says, why should I allow you into my heaven? You say, because I have trusted in Christ alone for my sins because of the blood of Jesus. Friend, if you have more questions about this and want to talk, I would love to talk with you. I know there's people here seated in your row that would love to talk to you about this gospel, this hope, so that you can have assurance too as you leave this morning. So I told you the first point was longer. Revealed righteousness. Second, in short, the revealed wrath of God. After Paul begins with the description of himself and the ministry that God has called him to, he wants to come back and preach the gospel to the Romans. You find that interesting? Paul's going to come to a church and preach the gospel? Why? Aren't they saved? I thought the gospel just gets it into heaven, right? No. We need the gospel every week. I need the gospel every week. And, and, and Paul's longing to go back to preach the gospel to this church. And he he comes in hot, really, verse 18. See that there? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul is not going to soft-pedal the gospel. He doesn't try to sweeten them up. No, he comes right at the truth of life here on earth. And he doesn't doesn't talk about their happiness or something that might appeal to them, but instead he talks about the wrath of God so that they would understand themselves and they would understand the world that, that they live in. And this is the motive for evangelism. And here's the thing that urged and drove Apostle Paul. It was verse 18. That's what drove him. Just need to recognize, Paul didn't stop and think, I wonder if the Romans will like this doctrine. I wonder if they'll care for me very much. Maybe they won't like me. He didn't worry about that. He just says it. He knew that they needed to hear the truth. They needed to hear, and he reminded again of the righteousness and sin. They needed not only to hear and understand the righteousness of God, but they needed to hear about the wrath of God. See, the unbeliever rejects both of these main points this morning. They don't accept the righteousness of God, and they don't accept the wrath of God. They don't even like the term righteousness in its fullest sense. Most people don't really want to be righteous. Most people just want to feel righteous. They like the idea of looking good to other people, but they're not truly interested in in being good through God. They don't care too much of the wrath of God either. And those two thoughts seem to be consistent. But what is utterly inconsistent is to believe in verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live for faith. But then not believe, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. According to Paul, the first one is revealed as much as the second one. The wrath is as much revealed as the righteousness of God by faith. 
So I can say with full assurance that you cannot believe in verse 17 unless you believe in verse 18 as well. Frankly, you cannot be a Christian if you only believe in verse 17 and reject verse 18. It is incompatible to redeem person. You will never see the real need unless you believe verse 18. These two verses go together. They cannot be separated. Righteousness means nothing to you unless you realize that you're under the wrath because of your sin. All of us. And I know that this world doesn't like to talk about the wrath of God. There's there's, there seems to be nothing more hated about the Christian message than the doctrine of the wrath of God. And, and it seems to be uncaring and unloving, the world says, that God would be wrathful towards people. But really, it doesn't flesh itself out in their life because everyone, every man and woman, has this sense of right and wrong built into them. Every person believes in their soul that evil should be punished. I mean, just spend a few moments with an unbeliever and ask for the wrongs that have been done to them in their life, serious wrongs, tremendous wrongs, and ask them, then what should happen to the person that did this? And they'll most likely answer that justice should come. They understand there's a right from wrong. People believe in wrath, most definitely. They just don't want to believe in wrath towards them. Even the people who hate the doctrine of the wrath of God call out to God to bring justice to criminals and deal with evil in this world. See, most believe in a system of law and government in order that evildoers and offenders should, should be punished for their wrongdoings. But as again, the only pushback is when the law is brought against us. And, and the rest of the chapter, and we're not going to dive into it this morning, but the rest of the chapter shows how the wrath of God is being poured out the big idea, that the, the way that God's wrath is being poured out on mankind is just to allow people to live as they would like for a while and allow them to reap the consequences. See, there are some sins that produce immediate consequences in life, like a man who drinks too much alcohol, who's dr- drunk and drives and, and kills someone. Immediate consequence. Or someone who, who decides to walk into a store and, and rob it at gunpoint and not knowing there's a policeman right there and is arrested right away. There's immediate consequences. But some consequences are gradual over time. And, and I believe this is in some ways what we're seeing in our world today. When the world runs amok for so long, we begin to see the consequences a little more clearly. But this is a result of God allowing the world to turn in on itself. And the consequences come. I mean, we heard it as I read through, right? Did you catch that? God gave them up. He says that over and over and over. God gave them up. God's allowing this to happen. And now when we come to these lists in the next few weeks, I want to hopefully give you some handles on how we should deal with this and think through these things and how we should relate to these sinners. Because I believe in some churches in history, uh, Christians just hate these people. You know, they they, they just want to spurn these people. And friends, you need to understand that that's not the right response as Christians. You you don't understand yourself. You've forgotten who you are down to your core before Jesus Christ saved you. And so we need to understand that. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. Do you remember this when he talks through it? He says, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. He goes down the list. And then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. So you need to remember that. This was you. And, and grace came. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So our response to these things should be gospel-oriented in this world. We cannot forget the gospel that redeemed us. Vile, wicked sinners that we once were before Christ saved us. So as I close, these, these two, righteousness and wrath, they're revealed and, and need to be understood. See, if we, if we do not see the wrath of God when we look at the cross of Calvary, it's, it's most likely true that we cannot see the love of God in its fullness. It's at the, the cross that the wrath of God was fully revealed to us. God's attitude towards sin is such that he cannot pretend that he has not seen it or, or that he will deal with it. See, God, God cannot see sin and not deal with it. And God's attitude towards sin demanded the death of his only son. God's hatred of sin, his abhorrence of it, his determination to punish it, his righteous demand upon it was such that Christ had to come into the world. Not to tell us that God loves us only, but to bear the wrath of God due our sin. Christ came and took our punishment for our sin. And he must have the last word, and the, and the cross proves that. And so before we see and understand the love of God, we have to understand the wrath of God. And I, and I pray as we walk through Romans 1, we'll, we'll see that, we'll understand ourselves, and we'll glory in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. You've been good listeners this morning. I know it's been kind of a fire hose pouring out, but I pray that it'll be a blessing to you as we walk through Romans 1. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It is clear and it's convincing for us as we read it and we apply it to our lives. I pray for those this morning that are new to, to listening to your word, to, to reading your word, and I pray that you would, you would make it clear for them. I pray that they would have boldness to, to find someone this morning in our midst to, to meet with, to read the Bible together, to ask questions to understand what it means to live in this world, to ask questions what it means to be a Christian. And God, I ask that you would give them faith to believe in you. We thank you for your, your Bible, the word that, that clarifies and cleans our hearts and our minds toward you. And may we understand and appreciate and love your revealed righteousness through Jesus Christ. And may we be grateful and thankful for our salvation from wrath towards our sin because of what Christ has done for us. We do pray that we will be faithful this week. May we leave this place encouraged in the word with assurance for what Christ has done and justified us before the Father. And may we go and take this gospel to those that we live among, families in our home, neighbors in our neighborhood, classmates and coworkers. May we be bold with the gospel, I pray this week. And we'll give you all the glory for what you do in and through our lives. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.